Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm gonna show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Premed Year, session number 442. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Now, welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you're listening to this live on May 12th, 2021. Today's the last day to pre-order my new book, The Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the Medical School Application Process, and submit your receipt at medschoolapplicationbook.com slash submit. When you do that, you'll get a PDF of all of my books, my application process book, MCAT book, personal statement book, interview book, all of the pre-med playbook series as well as access to two recorded calls, Q&A calls that we did for earlier pre-order students. And there's still a chance to enter to win one of five coaching calls with me. So go check those out again. Uh, go pre-order my new book, The Pre-Med Playbook Guide to the Medical School Application Process. And did you know registration is open? We're going to jump into our MCAT Minute sponsored by Blueprint MCAT. Registration is open. If you're taking the test in July, August, September, go register for your exam now. The question, though, for you is if you're applying this cycle in 2021 to start in 2022, taking the MCAT in July, August, and September is an increased risk of having schools ignore your application because they've already interviewed all of the people or at least invited all of the people that they're going to interview or they're reserving spots for very specific populations that that school wants to serve. So you, you have to be careful with later MCAT dates when you are applying. The ideal time frame to take the MCAT for any application cycle is before or at least March or April of the year you are applying. So this year you're applying 2021. To start 2022, you wanna take the MCAT no later than March or April of 2021. That's the MCAT Minute sponsored by Blueprint. Go check them out at blueprintmcat.com. Sign up for a free account and get access to tons of free goodies. Today, we have a recording of our Inside Med Admissions panel that happened a few weeks ago, and it was all about letters of recommendations. We had some great guests this time directors of admissions from Norda College of Osteopathic Medicine, the University of Illinois College of Medicine, and Dell Medical School. Hosted by Dr. Scott Wright, my VP of Academic Advising at MAPT. If you're looking for some help with your application or anything else, go check out mapt.com slash services. That's M-A-P-P-D dot Calm for mapped. This is a great discussion. You'll learn a lot about letters of recommendation, why they're important, what you can do about them, and sign up for our next session, which is happening May 26th, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We're going to talk about secondary applications. Welcome to 
Inside Med Admissions, and uh, we're, we're going to have a great day today talking about letters of recommendation, and I want to get quickly to all of our guests today and have them introduce themselves and tell, tell us a little bit about who they are and, and uh, what their role is in the admissions process and give, give us just a little bit of an overview of your kind of uh, of your history in 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 uh, medical school admissions or in uh, you know what kind of whatever your whatever your deal has been over the, over time. So we'll start off with Dr. Layla Amiri, and Layla, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everyone. I am Layla Miri, the Assistant Dean for Admissions and Recruitment at the University of Illinois College of Medicine. And I have a long history with um, health professions. I actually started um, as a undergraduate peer advisor in the biology department and just worked my way through the ranks into uh, pre-med advising. And then I've been doing admissions um in the medical school arena since 2009. So where I am currently is the fourth medical school where I uh, had the privilege to work. That's awesome. Happy to be here today. Yeah, great. Thank you for being here. I think this will be a great great, uh, time for you to kind of help us understand kind of your process and, and your recognition of the process at, at the various medical schools of you know, where, you've, uh, where you've been on staff. So, great. So, uh, Kristen, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Let us, know, let us know about you. Okay. My name is Kristen Anderson, and I'm the Director of Admissions at the Nordic College of Osteopathic Medicine in Provo, Utah. And I've been uh, the director there for a whole eight, almost nine months. Um, awesome. <laughs> uh, but before that, Uh, Yeah, we're a brand new school, but before that, I worked as a a pre-health advisor at a local university for um, eight years. I did one year of pre-PA and and pre-pharmacy advising, and then did seven years of pre-medical advising. Awesome. I kind of had a similar kind of start. It came from advising into um, admissions like Dr. Amiri. Yeah, that's awesome. Very good. Thank you for being with us, Kristen. It's nice to to have you here. here. Absolutely. And Joel, uh, tell us about yourself a little bit. Well, uh, good afternoon, Scott. Thanks for the opportunity to visit with y'all. My name is Joel DeBone, Director of Admissions of Records at Dell Medical School. And Scott, when you asked how long we've been doing this, I had to think for a second. (laughs) Um, So I have been involved in in, uh, college admissions now for about 31 years. Uh, both at the undergraduate level and as uh, in the professional school level over the last, I guess, 12 or 14 years. Um, And in the last six years, I've worked uh, with a new medical school and and helped uh, start the the, uh, selection process for a brand new school, which has been probably one of the more rewarding experiences of my career. So it's been a lot of fun. Excellent. And Dale Medical School, I will have to point out Dale Medical School is right here in Austin, Texas, where I am currently as well. And uh, I noticed, Joel, that you've got your your burnt orange shirt on in recognition of your allegiance to the Longhorns, I suppose. And so, well, it's allegiance to my paycheck, Scott. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Totally get it. I totally get it. Well, thank you all three for joining us uh, today. What I would like to start off with is just to get each of you to give us a little bit of an insight uh, after all, the, the name of this broadcast is Inside Med Admissions. And so the goal here is to give us, a, is to give the students that are listening and, and watching us is give them a little insight on what, what the, what the process is like inside the admissions committee, inside the, inside how things work and re- relevant uh, here to letters of, letters of uh, recommendation. What I would like to know is kind of, kind of how do you, how do each of you in your process of, of the admission selection process, how do you use letters of recommendation? Let's just start off with that. Give us a little bit of an insight into what goes into uh, when your admissions committee, when the members are looking at the application and they're looking at letters of recommendation, well, how do you use those in kind of a big picture type of way? And then we'll drill down a little bit to understanding a little bit more specifically various aspects of that. But give us an overall picture of kind of how that works in your process. And, and uh, Joel, since we were just talking, let's, uh, let's start with you. Sure. Um, so the, the letters of recommendation are reviewed 
during the admissions committee evaluation. So this is at the point of decision. So what has happened up to that point? The applicant has been pre-screened for selection for interview and has been uh, reviewed based on the non-cognitive variables to make that choice. The student has then come into the institution uh, now virtually interviewed, and those evaluations have been compiled. And then the entire packet, the application, those recommendation, interview experience evaluations are all sent to the committee for review. And so the letters of recommendation are viewed in that context. So it allows us to put together um, other people's perspective of that applicant and behavior that we observe either at the interview day or through their past behavior in their application. So it gives and lends context to the entire application. Awesome. Great. Great. Uh, Layla, why don't you tell us a little bit about how it works on your end of things and Sure, I'm happy to. So for us, the letters are reviewed as part of the screening process. And what we're looking for is information above and beyond what the candidate has already provided to us by virtue of the personal statement and the experiences and activities that they've uh, provided to us. Um, Really, those intangible parts of their personality that are not accessible by just what they've shared with us. So we will um, assess that at the screening um, stage. We will have comments on the strength of the letter of recommendation and how much additional information it provides if I can just take a moment here, Scott. Um, so, you know, some letters are, are more in-depth and they give you more insight into this candidate, whereas some letters um, are a little bit more about the letter writer. And then there's a few comments at the end that says, well, my class is really hard and, you know, only 2% pass and this person got an A and therefore, you know, so that letter would be less informative, would not hurt the candidate, but less informative. The other one would give us a little bit more detail. Then the letter, the entire packet goes forward to our committee on admissions for um, consideration of interview. And at that point, the letters are revisited by the committee on admissions individuals. And um, when the student comes in for interview, the interviewers do not have access um, to the letters. Then they come back into um, the game again at the time when we're deliberating over admissions, just like Joel mentioned. Yeah, good, excellent. And Kristen? Um, So our process is not unlike both of theirs. Uh, So we do require the letters of recommendation to be submitted as part of the supplemental or secondary application. That's when they're actually due to us and um, will be evaluated for Uh, meeting the requirements. And then um, from there, students are invited to um, complete a secondary, or excuse me, complete a a virtual, this year was a virtual interview. We're hoping to bring back uh, in-person interviews in the next cycle, we'll see. Um, And then the interviewers actually don't have access to the letters of recommendation. They only have access to a a video secondary that the, the applicants submit as part of their supplemental materials and then their personal statement, and then they complete the, the interview with the uh, interviewer. And then all of the interview feedback, along with um, the letters of recommendation and other application materials without uh, GPA and MCAT scores are forwarded on to the admissions committee, who then evaluate, make decisions and recommendations from mm-hmm. them. Excellent. So very similar in a lot of ways, with the exception of, I think, Joel, in terms of you guys uh, kind of looking uh, looking at letters uh, maybe a little bit later in the process than than uh, Kristen and, and, and Layla. So that's excellent. Uh, so I, I guess one of the things that students often are very uh, interested in and concerned about is is getting a good letter, getting a strong letter of recommendation from their faculty or, or whatever. And, and so one of the questions that I, are, are, that I really wanted to get addressed today is what makes a letter great? You know, what, 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 what differentiates? And, and Layla, you sort of alluded to this a little bit in, in your comments earlier. So let's start off with you here and just say, what, what is it that makes a letter really great? What, what, what is it when you read a letter and you think, wow, this is, this is a standout kind of letter here? What, what is it that that looks like? What makes that happen? So, you know, we, we like to see a letter that shows understanding of the candidate, 
right? And time spent with the candidate and personal interactions with the candidate. So for example, for our program, we require three faculty letters. So for a faculty letter, we would like to hear that they've had discussions and conversations with the student, that the student is able to think critically and um, has been able to analyze the information, maybe pull it, um, you know, pull in information from other from other sources to things that they've been discussing. But really it is it is it is the personal relationship that the faculty member has had with the student and they can give us more insight into the individual. If it is a personal recommendation, because we'll accept personal recommendations as well. So if it's their volunteering coordinator, for example, or um, the PI to their research lab, Again, it's, you know, the times that the individual has gone above and beyond or the PI will share with us individual experiences that they've had with this candidate that have set them apart from others that they've known. So really, this is an introduction to how they would be as a person outside of the carefully curated items that they've submitted to us as mm-hmm. as part of their application. So that's what we're looking for. Yeah. Those little nuggets. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, what, what are your thoughts here? What, what makes a letter great? Well, I, if I would follow with what Layla's saying is, is insight. Um, she, she commented about the, the letter we see sometimes too often, which is the letter about the letter writer and then a little bit about the student at the end. Um, and, and that it tells us a little bit about the decision-making process of the applicant. Um, you know, did, who you pick to write your letters gives us some insight about you as well. And so you want to pick individuals who are going to be able to speak to uh, certain attributes that you want to highlight. Uh, if you want to talk about your ability to solve problems, then having somebody write a letter about how you uh, came against a difficulty, an obstacle, how you overcame that and what steps you went through to get, uh, get through that. If you want to highlight some experience you did in leadership, then uh, have somebody who can write that letter that reflects on their personal experience with you and how you collaborated with others to make that happen. So um, I was playing with, with this idea of this analogy and it probably won't come off very well, but um, <laughs> so if you, if you think about uh, every applicant is a gemstone of multiple facets and what you, as an applicant, what you want to decide is where do I want to shine the light to make a certain facet sparkle that people can see about you know, reinforce something I've done in my application. And so I would encourage you to also think about, the three types of letters. And Atlanta has a requirement that they all come from faculty. We don't have that requirement. Um, But you can also do a supplemental letter or a fourth letter as well. But what what you want to be able to do is find voices that can speak about different aspects of who you are as opposed to one voice or or multiple voices speak about one facet. So think about what you're trying to, to illuminate in your application. And that helps us better understand who you are. So a letter that, that does that, uh, is more effective than, as you know, Layla pointed out, the, the perfunctory letter that uh, sometimes we get. Yeah, and I know that you, you know, you, you like I, Joel, and, and and the rest of you, having been around this business for a long time, we get this question a lot from students. Well, you know, I my classes are huge. You know, I have there's 350 students in my general chemistry class or there's a thousand students in my physics class or whatever. And, and they get, they get bogged down in this idea of how do I, how do I get to know my, you know, these people well enough to uh, for, for them to know me to, 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 to write a letter. This isn't the case, obviously at smaller institutions where you have a lot more touch uh, with, uh, with the faculty, but uh, yeah, this comes up a lot. And uh, what's your, What's your recommendation, uh, you know, Kristen? What What do you say to students uh, to to get them to understand how, how they kind of get get to the point of of having that that letter that's really going to be meaningful? So I um, always recommend that students from the the beginning of the semester approach a professor that they think they may want to ask to write a letter on their behalf, and just approach them and say, "Here's my situation. I'm planning to apply to medical school." As you may or may not know, you know, a letter of recommendation is a requirement as, you know, part of that application process. I would love to be able to get a letter of recommendation from you if you'd be willing to write one and, and then ask them, what would you need from me this semester to feel comfortable writing, writing an excellent letter on my behalf? And then obviously do those things. 
Um, I also recommend that they utilize office hours. Every you know professor is going to have office hours, even if they have many large classes. So utilizing those times to make a connection, you know, pop in, ask questions about you know the the topic of the week, or you know, get clarification, or even if they feel like they have a good grasp on the material, just stopping in to to kind of get their face seen, their name known to really uh, cultivate that relationship. Yeah. And any, any further comments, uh, Kristen, on, on sort of what makes a, a letter great, you know, in your mind, when you see a letter and you think, wow, this is a great letter. What, what does that mean? Um, so I, for me, it's, I feel like I can actually see the the person, see that they know the person and I, I get a feel for the applicant and who they are and how they operate. Um, maybe, like they said, in addition to what we see on the application, it is just seeing another side of them or, and sometimes it's just backing up their claims, you know, showing that they are who they say they are. Um, and, and those great letters will, will, I can feel it. I don't, I don't know how any other way to say it, but you can feel that you get, you know, an idea of who that person really is because yeah. the letter writer is conveying that. Yeah, that's that's good good point. Uh Layla, what are, what are your thoughts on this? Uh relative to, you know, what makes this letter, you know, bam, this is so awesome. You know, it's interesting because when we have those conversations exactly like the one that you shared, you know, there's 500 people in my class, how do I get the letter? You know, the question is what part of application med- to medical school is easy? Right. So all parts of it require a lot of time and effort and work. Right. And so it is it is the student's responsibility to make themselves known to the faculty member. Right. Um, And so it's exactly what Kristen said, you know, spend time with the faculty member, show up to office hours. I think for those of us who have taught, um, we know office hours get really lonely. Right. And that person that shows up who is eager to discuss and talk about um, what it is that they're learning in class, you you know, um, sticks in our mind. And there's information that a student can share. And now that gap years have become more common, I mean, the frequent question is, well, I graduated last year and I can't get a faculty letter. Can I give you other letters. So I think what's important for students to understand is that the schools have the requirements. The requirements are what they are for a specific reason, right? So if you're applying to a school that has stipulations on the type of letter, then it's up to you to stay in touch with the faculty member. And I really appreciated what Kristen said. You know, in the beginning of the semester, if you see someone that you like them, then you begin to cultivate that relationship there. And so it's okay that you've graduated. I think faculty like to know. Oh, where you are. And I don't even know if you have to approach them in the beginning to say that you're applying to medical school. It could be that you just have an interest, you know, in, in the class, but it's, it is, it's hard work and we understand that. And, and I, I say this because the letters are so important, as you've heard from the three of us, right? It's, it's a subjective reading on our part of the content of the letter, so the content of the letter in of itself is really important. And so it would be best for you not to get a perfunctory letter from a, you know, chemistry faculty member who's teaching a class of 270 people and you're just one out of the three that got the A. Yeah. Now, and so a good good follow-up question to that, Layla, is, is this idea of, you know, I, I, I was in a class, it was a huge class, and I really got to know the grad student that was the TA for the class, or I really got to know the postdoc in the lab as opposed to the PI. Um, Does that carry, is it different in terms of who this letter is coming from? Would it be better to have a really strong, well-written, intimate letter from the, 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 the postdoc in the lab Rather than a sort of perfunctory, yeah, he worked in my lab, you know, blah, 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 whatever, coming from the PI. How do you weigh those two things uh, uh, relative to what they're saying about the student? Uh, You know, Scott, uh, that's a great question. And because I've worked at different med schools, the perspectives were different at the different locations, right? So we want an insightful letter Um, at my current location. if you provide a letter from the postdoc or the graduate student um, that's really detailed and insightful, particularly since undergraduates are often, you know, the right-hand uh, person for the, the fellows or the postdocs or the graduate students, it's fine for us. Um, 
if the school to which you're applying, you know, requires that the letter be from the PI, it's always okay for you to ask the postdoc to ask the PI or the faculty member to endorse the letter. Mm -hmm. So we have many letters that have two signatures on them. Um, So the letter is written from the the postdoc or fellow and the faculty members or the um, PI's uh, signature is on there as well. But what's important is that the letters are from individuals that know you well, who can write a good letter for you. You don't want to waste one of those spots of a letter that you have to submit. Don't think of this as just a box to check, right? There, there's a reason that we ask for the letters. It's more writing for us. Uh, more reading for us, not writing, more, yeah. re- more reading for us. So, right. um, so it's fine for our, for our program. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Excellent. That's great. Any other, any comments from Kristen, you or Joel relative to that? I mean, from your perspective, uh, when you get a letter from a grad student uh, that was the lab instructor for chemistry or whatever, how, how does that impact your process as opposed to a, to a, the, the professor of, of record for the, for the course? Yeah, well, yeah. Go ahead, Joel. Oh, Kristen, yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, um, go ahead, Joel. Well, I was just reinforce what Lena said. I think is really important. Is is the content is what we're looking to to evaluate. And I have seen composite letters where you have the faculty uh, instructor's information at the top, and their comments about the student, and then a much more detailed uh, explanation of the activities the student was engaged in by the, uh, the teaching assistant or the graduate student. Um, but I think if you had to pick one or the other, the, for us, the one that, that gave us more light into who you are is more valuable to us, not the one with the credentials at the end of the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and remember what the, you mentioned that some students complain about not having the access to, to faculty in large classes. And, you know, there are, there are large prereq courses, but they're also, as you get into more rigorous and uh, more uh, specific uh, subject matter, those classes become smaller. And so you should be able to make those connections. Um, as, and also remember what the intent of the letter is. The letter is to give us some insight uh, in your ability. And if you have had no contact at all with any faculty um, that can speak to that, other than you went to class every day, um, you know, we wonder then what, you know, besides going to class, what else were you engaged in? And maybe it comes out through something else. Um, so you, you need to be engaged in your, uh, your academic arena uh, more than just going to class and then going home. You have to go to the office hours of said already. Um, if you have a, a, if you stumble and don't do well and you collaborate with your instructor to kind of find a way to get your pace back and to, to improve, even if you made a B in that class, their ability to talk about how you overcame an obstacle is really uh, informative to us. Mm. So I, I would look for opportunities to, to get engaged uh, in your learning other than just going to class and, and being passive in your learning. Yeah, absolutely. Kristen, add anything yeah. to add to that? Yeah. Um, I would echo what's been said and then, and just um, kind of add to that, that. So we do require a letter from a science faculty member who is familiar with the applicant's work, but that's, that person does not have to be that professor of record. It can be, um, you know, someone else that's, you know, a TA in the classroom or a, or a postdoc in the lab or, you know, whatever that might be. Um, and, or even a, um, like a research supervisor or, or professor that maybe the, the student or the applicant didn't actually take a class from, but they might know them better because they've spent more time with them because they're so involved in, in the research. Um, it does need to be a faculty member. So, um, you know, not, not a peer obviously, but, um, someone who knows the applicant best and can really speak to who they are and and how they operate. Yeah. Good. So we've talked a little bit about great letters. I'm sort of interested in knowing how often do you receive really bad letters? I mean, I'm assuming that every now and then you get a letter that says, well, I'm not so sure about this student. Uh, you know, give us a little insight into, into that, you know, it, it, particularly with regard to what you've all just kind of, what you've all just kind of uh, talked about, which is the students need to think carefully about 
who they're asking for letters from. And uh, I, I just, I've known in my own past uh, as, uh, as an admissions officer how, how that kind of works and, and that at times we get letters where you think, wow, why did, why did that student ask for this prof- specific professor to ask to uh, write a letter for them? So I'm kind of interested, uh, Kristen, have you seen any letters or, you know, what do you do with a letter that just, you know, or how often have you seen letters where they just, they're just not really great letters? So in my current role, because I mean, we've been through this one cycle, I haven't seen a ton of really bad letters, but as an advisor, I, I saw not like bad letters in that they were recommending against the, um, the applicant, but more that they just clearly had nothing to say about them, I feel like is what came through more than anything in my experience, is just that it was like a paragraph, and then it was clear that, you know, they, they didn't know the applicant or didn't feel like they had a lot of great things to say about them. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and yeah. of course, as an advisor, I, I couldn't let my students know that. And so that was tricky. But um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, in this cycle, we haven't had, uh, we haven't seen that with our applicants yeah. so far, but yeah. I'm sure it's, it's coming. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I- anybody seen really bad letters? Go ahead, Jill. I was going to say, um, I think Chris's point is, is really important. It's oftentimes it's the absence of information that makes a poor letter. And so that's what you read as a, an evaluator. You're looking at what is said and what is not said. Um, the, um, sometimes we'll, we'll see two terrific letters and then one letter, this is very rare, but one letter that, that really has a negative comment in it. And sometimes we will follow up with that letter writer to get more information to give us some insight. And then the committee will take that information in context with the, with the other letters. Um, but, but very rarely do, do you get a letter that says, Oh, don't, don't, uh, I wouldn't recommend this student to, to care for my pets, much less my family. So um, <laughs> in my house, actually uh, pets are first and then I'm second. So. <laughs> I totally understand that. Lalo, any comments about bad letters? So I, I wanted to add to this a little bit. Um, so I have seen some bad letters, but I agree with um, Joel and Kristen. We don't see too many of them, right? Generally, students are are wise enough to request letters from faculty members and, you know, individuals that they know will, will give them a letter of support. Um, I think the piece of advice that I would have here if, is if there's an individual where there was a, a fallout and the candidate feels that that fallout was resolved, um, they really need to be certain that it was, right? So um, um, I, I have read letters where the uh, it was a two-sided recommendation, right? So the recommendation was, I have no doubt that this individual can handle the course, the, the load of medical school. I don't know how they will function in your environment, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a bad letter because it speaks to all those you know, intangibles, right? It speaks to how they are as a peer, how they are as a team member and all of those things. I mean, we can see that they can handle the coursework because of the grades and MCAT that they are are providing to us. So I I have seen letters and those letters cause a lot of um, concern uh, for the committee, particularly if it's an individual that, you know, we're interested in. And I will share with you that the times that we have taken the risk and invited the individual to our campus, um, they have not done well in the environment. So, um, uh, so there's insight there. Now, you know, what is the takeaway from this? You know, don't ask for a letter from a place where, you know, you haven't fun- functioned well in the context of a laboratory <laughs> or something. You know, I don't know what the takeaway is, but, and, and again, it goes with that inherent subjectivity that's, you know, in all of our in all of our programs, right? So we, we read the letter and we're waiting for the person to do something maybe, and, and maybe something happens that would have been ignored or not seen had, if we didn't have that letter. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer the general question, have you seen bad letters? I have letters that'll say, you know, admitting this person to your program is like allowing them to drive a bus off the side of a cliff, right? Oh, so wow. why would you want that person in your, in your medical school, even though, they have a 4.0 and a 528 and, you know, multiple publications at the undergraduate level. So we, we do see uh, things like this. Um, and so I feel that that goes more to the letter writer because they should not write a recommendation letter. 
right? This is a letter of recommendation. It's not a letter of reference. Um, so, and, and I think there's a, there's a difference there. And so they should not have agreed to write the letter of recommendation, but they did. And now the medical school has that information. And so, you know, we will do with it what we can. Um, but it has always borne out for us that um, the recommender's insight um, was accurate. And, and they took the time to do that, right? They, they didn't give us examples, but there was enough, enough there for us to know that there was a concern. Yeah. How often do you have to kind of read between the lines in a letter? You know, I mean, you know, this comes to the issue of nuances in terms of a letter. What, you know, are there times when you read a letter and you think, wow, I'm, they're not saying something, you know, outright, but I get the feeling from, from just the reading between the lines that there's something else going on here with this, uh, with this between this student and this letter writer. Do, do you see that, or do, do you try to do you try to to, to reduce that sort of uh, that sort of evaluation, or, or do you have to you know kind of pay attention to your gut when it when it comes to those those types of things? Kristen, any thoughts about that? Um, I think that that we probably see that quite a bit um <laughs> we're just kind of it's kind of the uh, sorry the letters have kind of the message of like they're they're fine but they're not great um and and seeing if they're not providing examples of kind of what they're saying or their their language is more neutral and not they don't seem real excited about them and I feel like those are some lines that we try to read between and and mm-hmm. see like okay hey, what's really going on here and um, you know, and we're left to question, is there something more going on here or do they just really not know the applicant and they're trying to, to do them a service that, yeah. um, you know, as was mentioned before, maybe that letter writer shouldn't be writing a letter on behalf writing of letter. the applicant yeah. if they, if they yeah. you know, don't feel strongly in support of them. Yeah. Yeah. Joel, do you have to read between the lines? Well, we, we caution our committee for speculating. You know, you can't, you can't, if you don't have the evidence or the information, you really can't speculate that that's what it could be. Um, what it, what it, the question is, does it, uh, does it support other past behavior in the application? And if the answer is no, there's, it's, a, you know, the letter says they're fine, but there's nothing, like Christian said, any examples to support um, activity that they've been engaged in in their application, then, then really the letter is, its impact is diminished because of the lack of information, not because we have speculated that there's something else going on. Um, if there is any question that the committee has um, in which there's something that is, it's not between the lines, but it's, it's unclear. It's been written, but it's unclear on, on what the meaning was. We will, we will reach back to that, that uh, letter writer and ask them to clarify. And then that is then presented to the committee again. Do you find that letter writers, when you do have to reach out to them like that, do you find that they're willing to kind of be more sort of upfront with you in a phone call, for example? Um, yes. Uh, I generally do ask them, though, to supply the information in writing so that we can ah. present that to the committee. Gotcha. Um, but I, you know, it often starts with a conversation. And then, and many times, and to be honest, many times it's the letter writer that said, oh, I, that was in a, a mission uh, I should have mentioned that she was part of a lab that I collaborated with. She wasn't in my lab. And so we couldn't, for instance, we couldn't make that, that connection with what the letter writer was writing about. Or, um, no, that was not my intent. Um, but occasionally, and this is pretty rare, it's, yes, there, there was an issue uh, that occurred with the, um, uh, the um, standards committee with this individual, and although they were not found to have violated standards, we were concerned by their behavior. Mm-hmm. So we would ask them to, to elaborate, to illuminate that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Layla, you were shaking your head when Joel was saying you, you kind of caution your committee not to read between the lines too much. Uh, you want to comment on that as well? Yeah, I'll be happy to. You know, the times where we have, and I've done what Joel does, I've, I've reached out to them. There really wasn't anything between the lines. It just, it just was what they, what they were sharing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I feel that the, the individual letters rarely ask us to read between the lines, right? I think I feel that sometimes it's the committee letters that might have a little bit of read between the lines. And um, 
this might be getting too specific, but if there's a scoring mechanism, right, and then the, um, like, based on everything that you see, the person should get the highest ranking, but they don't, they get, you know, one lower or two lower, then there's something, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I've, when I've called, um, there wasn't anything that they wanted me to read between the lines, except to understand that, you know, for all intents and purposes, they're a fine applicant, but they are not as strong as the other students that that they would have. So we caution our committee about reading between the lines as well. Um, and probably Kristen and Joel have experienced this. I mean, you can get hung up on wordsmithing. Um, and when I have gone back to faculty and asked them about this, they just laugh because it was not their intent for us to read anything other uh, than, than what, what they had shared. So we try not to read between the lines and appreciate yeah. it when the language is, um, you know, just clear for us yeah. to be able to follow it. Yeah, good. So you, you brought up committee letters, and that was the very convenient segue because I wanted to move on to that and, and, and talk a little bit about committee letters because there are a lot of a lot of undergraduate institutions that have a committee process where they're asking uh, students to do a variety of things, and then in the process of that, they uh, the uh, the pre med uh, committee does what they do and produces a, a letter of, of, of a summary letter, or sometimes it's just a, a, a composite of, of various comments from the, so I guess what my question relative to uh, the committee process is when you have a student coming from a school that you know has a committee process and that student does not get the committee letter. They've got individual letters. There's no mention of the committee in their file. And uh, does it make you wonder why does this? Why did this student not get a committee letter? Did, or, or do you just kind of take it on face value? Here's the letters we have. We'll look at them and evaluate the applicant based on that. What, what do you do with the, the either presence of a committee letter or the absence of a committee letter. So, uh, Joel, why don't you, you know, why don't you address that? I know there's there's quite a few uh, schools that you deal with uh, on a you know real regular basis, particularly in Texas, with that have committee process. And uh, so, I'm guessing that you guys deal with this kind of thing a lot. Well, and, and as you know, a lot of the faculty at those institutions who are charged with uh, producing all of the letters of recommendation for their, their campus sometimes is an office of one or office of two. And so they have processes where the students have to go through certain steps in order to get access to that letter. And so sometimes you'll have a candidate who entered the stream a different way to the application process, met the prerequisites, followed the, literature online and, and did what they needed to do, but they may not be able to get access to that committee letter. So we, um, we look at it on, on the face value of what they provide. And um, it, it is not, and some committee letters have actually kind of morphed into compilation letters, which is the equivalent of going out and getting three letters on your own. Now you're getting a, a compilation letter from the committee and there isn't any additional uh, scoring or recommendation with that, that packet. So everybody's got a little bit of a different flavor. Um, I don't consider it a red flag if, if for some reason a student didn't go through the committee process. Uh, maybe they're a non-traditional student. Um, I think again, there is so much content that we look at in its totality that this is one piece of that that interdigitates with all of it, and we, we look at it for its value. Space value. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. Layla, uh, any red flags when a student doesn't have a committee letter? Um, you know, I'm going to pull from my experience on this one. And um, originally it did. So when I was undergraduate pre-med advisor, um, I chaired our letter writing committee and we did have cutoffs. And so there was a um, number of students who were not eligible to receive our letters. And those cutoffs were based on metrics at that point, you know, many, many years ago. And so, um, you know, in retrospect, that wasn't a good process for us to have in place because we did disadvantage um, some students. So I I took that learning with me and um, we have the perspective that Joel does. I mean, if a student has a committee letter and it's a well-written committee letter, it makes our job a lot easier, 
right? Because they have digested the information for us, they've analyzed yeah. it for us, and they've ranked the student and the in the context of all of the applicants that we get from you know this school, um, which is one of our top feeder schools. I know exactly what to expect from this individual coming in through the door on interview day as a student and as they leave my program, you know, as a trained physician. Um, so it makes our it makes our job easier. But is it a red flag? It absolutely isn't um, because there's, as Joel mentioned, there's so many different ways that students come to the medical school application process. Um, and even if they are a traditional student, but a student who hasn't, you know, taken advantage of the advising office and the requirement is that you must meet with us at least, you know, twice a semester to get a letter, then they're already at a disadvantage because they didn't have time to go to the office because they had a job or something. So it's not a red flag for us. Um, earlier on in my time as an admissions um, representative for medical school, I would ask the question, if your school um, offers a committee letter, please describe why you do not have one if you don't have one. Um, and it was tough, right? And it, um, because the in, in, in speaking with our candidates at that point, that it made them feel bad about that because automatically going in, they felt that there was a red flag on them for not having that thing that we were receiving from everyone else. So over time, I've realized too, that it's, it's not a good idea to to look at that as a red flag if they don't have the committee letter. Yeah, good. Yeah, that's. Uh, it sounds like a, a, an appropriate response uh, to me, Kristen. Uh, what, what about you guys? So we do require a letter from a pre medical source, and that will accept an advisor letter, a composite evaluation, a, a committee letter, anything like that. And we don't consider it a red flag, as has been mentioned. Um, if you don't have a committee letter and your school offers that, because there are a number of reasons. Uh, why someone may not have that letter. Um, and and then also, if a pre-med source isn't available, then we will allow for a second uh, faculty member or an employer letter um, that might be more telling for non-traditional students to, you know, maybe have an employer letter if they've been out in the workforce, yeah. as opposed to going back and, you know, meeting with an advisor and, and trying to get a letter from someone that they really don't have a relationship with. Don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Kristen, while we're, while we're with you, uh, I know that many osteopathic medical schools really want to see a letter from a, from a DO, from a, mm -hmm. from a, a practicing osteopathic do doctor. Do you got, do you, does your school require a, a DO letter? And, you know, if, if a student comes into your process without a DO letter, what, what does that mean? Uh, how, how do you, you know, weigh that versus a, a student that has a DO letter. Talk a little bit about that. So we do require a physician letter and, and we will accept a letter from an MD or a DO physician. So we don't explicitly require a DO letter. Obviously, we would hope that they've had some exposure to osteopathic medicine and can speak to that. And um, But they may have shadowed a, a DO, but didn't get to know that DO well enough to actually be able to get a letter of recommendation from them. But maybe they you know, worked with an MD as an MA or something like that. And, and that physician could provide better insight into who they are as a person and how they might be as a physician or, you know, someone who cares for patients. So right. we don't explicitly require the DO letter. We would prefer it, um, but it, it's not an absolute requirement. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I mean, Joel, what about, what about uh, Dale Medical School? Do you you like to see letters from a physician? Uh, does it matter? Uh, tell us a little bit about on your end of things how that how that might look. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Uh, we don't have um, any kind of designation on the letter. It it I think as a student said earlier, it it needs to give us some insight uh, into your experience and uh, somebody else's experience with you. And they can speak to that. So uh, if you have worked, for instance, in, um, in healthcare and having somebody who could speak to your uh, acumen for that profession, how you worked with the patients, how the patients felt comfortable with you as, as uh, the physician's MA, and uh, oftentimes um, you were you know, able to make them feel more comfortable in the exam room while you did the, the vitals, you know, that kind of, of observation is helpful, but that observation could come from a PI or it could come from an employer uh, in a different environment as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, we don't really have a checkbox of you know, preference. Uh, again, I think the preference is just 
something of substantive nature that can tell us more about who you are. Mm-hmm. Right. Layla, any comments here? No, I think I would just echo what you heard everyone else say. I mean, it's um, the the letters need to be the letters need to be insightful, and they need to give us the additional information that we're looking for about um, about the candidate. I think the uh, uh, there's good guidelines on how to write letters. You know, from mm-hmm. the AAMC, I encourage students to make that available to their letter writers and really get the letters from the individuals that know them know them best. Yeah. Not much no. to add here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. And, and, and it seems to me like that it, 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 it's beneficial uh, when you get the letter and, and, and to sort of encapsulate what, what all of you have said uh, numerous times during this broadcast is that, is that what you want to see is, is a letter from someone who knows the student well, uh, who knows the, the student well enough to really address uh, who they are and how strong of a candidate they are and or, or how how uh, how well they think they're going to do within within the environment whether whether the letter is from a nurse that they've worked beside uh, whether it's from an EMT supervisor or a, a graduate student in the in the uh, lab uh, you the, the the beneficial letter is the letter that says I really know this person very well and can address in a in a, in, a, in a strong way, their capabilities. And those capabilities are X, Y, and Z. And I've witnessed this in a variety of different settings, or et cetera, et cetera. And that seems to me to be kind of what you're all saying, uh, that students need to uh, really find those individuals uh, uh, within the context of knowing that you really would like to see uh, faculty members uh, who can address those types of things? And you know, we've talked a little bit about about that already. But the 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 strong letter is the letter that I know this person well. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, and that that this is going to give you insight uh, that's going to help you in your decision making process. Did I get that right? Pretty much, <laughs> Joel. If I could add, I mean, it's really the person is putting their um, name behind the credibility of this individual as an applicant, you know, to the program and a member of our, of our community, right? So when, when we get a letter from a nurse who has 37 years of experience and talks to us about the bedside manner, I'm not going to worry at all about how that person's going, that candidate is going to fit into our, into our community. So that's really, that's really what we're looking for, right? Helping us understand how they know them. And then why is it that this individual is a credible source to recommend someone for us to consider for a program, you know, above and beyond everything else that they've already submitted. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would add one caveat, Scott, about uh, the letter and having it written by somebody who really knows you well. Um, yes, with the exception of anybody who's a direct relation to you. Right. Uh, or somebody who may be your next door neighbor who happens to be a physician and who will write, Letter says, I've known Johnny since he was six years old, and I think he's an outstanding young man. You know, that has, by their inherent nature, letters should be biased. They have to be. That's why you've chosen people to write for you. But having uh, that kind of nepotistic bias, bias is, is problematic, and is, it, it lessens the effect of the letter. So really think about people you've gone out and sought to find out more about who you are and who can write about your experience. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Can I just piggyback off of what Joel said? So the the next door neighbor, we did have an amazing letter from for a student who the next door neighbor did write the letter. He wasn't a physician, but this um, applicant had mowed their yard for free for the past like 17, 18 years. And that that went a long way, right? Because it spoke about the individual's other centeredness and all of that. So I agree with everything that Joel said on top of if there is that kind of relationship with a with a neighbor, that's okay too, because you're a good community member, yeah. and that's what we want, right? We want someone who's going to make our community better. And so, if you were giving another centered where you lived, we hope that you will bring that to our to our community as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, note to all the students that are listening: go mow the lawn of your neighbor today. Go get start that process. No, I'm kidding. Scott, can I give you my address just so yeah, <laughs> in the area? <laughs> 
Right, exactly. Kristen, any final uh, any final thoughts that you know we've got basically 152 students and uh, that are li- listening and watching live. Uh, probably more than that. We we have a lot of students that'll be listening to this uh, uh, later on on you on our YouTube TV channel and and potentially podcast listeners as well. So we want to give them. You know any 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 morsels of wisdom that you have as we as we close this off that you would think would be helpful for these students to to hear from you. Whew, no pressure with a, a right. up like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, morsels. So I would say um, just kind of putting on my old advisor hat. Start looking at the schools that you think that you want to apply to and get familiar with their letters of recommendation requirements and start thinking about who you might be able to get to fill those requirements and build those relationships now and, um, you know, start to build them, but, but continue to cultivate and nurture those relationships. And um, yeah, I yeah. think that's, that's my morsel. Yeah, there you go. I guess, uh, Joel, uh, you know, you, you alluded to an analogy of a gemstone earlier, any other gemstone, uh, any other gemstone you have for us today? Uh, you know, I, I think that who you who you pick as your letter writer gives us some insight into who you are, but also uh, some of your own self awareness, and uh, that's part of how you made your decision who you wanted to, to write about you. Um, so, if you think about your accomplishments, what you want to highlight, as I said earlier, and then you go out and find those individuals who can speak to that, that really helps. Put, pull together your application. It's not just one piece of information. It's really the tapestry of your whole application that we're looking at and how all that's interwoven. When threads are, don't really connect is when it's more difficult to really kind of draw that conclusion. Yeah. So think about what you want to highlight in your application and think about the individuals who can speak to those experiences uh, and speak to them well based on your, your working relationship with them. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And Layla, any last uh, last words of wisdom from you today? So I will, um, I will like to have some comments about the mechanical parts of this process. So we've talked about all the substantive parts, right? So um, see what the requirements are for the letters. I mean, if it needs to be on letterhead, if it needs to have a signature, mm-hmm. make sure that you have those so the letters are not denied by the school. If the school has a platform where you can see what's missing. Check that out. If not, you know, email the school to see what the requirements are. Um, If you've waived your um, ability to see the letter, then you really won't know. So uh, you don't want your application to be held back because of of those things, right? Mm -hmm. And, And request your letters early, early enough so that they get there at the time that you're submitting your supplemental so that your application can be um, completed. So it's some of these mechanical things that um, sometimes hold the applications back. I mean, we had to, we had to deny um, lots of students this year because of those things. And then, and then please know if we require a signature, but your person can't sign because they don't have a scanner at home, it's okay for you to let us know that, right? We, we want to work with you. We're excited about every application that we receive. So, um, uh, so outside of all of the substantive morsels that Kristen right. and Joel provided, I'll just give this mechanical one. <laughs> yeah, there you go. No, that's, that's awesome. Well, I want to, again, thank all of you for being here today. This has been super informative. I think the students will find that, uh, that the, the, uh, the things that you've said are very helpful in terms of understanding both how the process works but also things that they can do on their end of things to really make it uh, advantage them and uh, to be a to be a good candidate. They they desperately want to be good candidates uh, for 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 your schools, and and we're excited to help them here at MAP to to in order to do that. And to, that's one of the reasons we do this uh, this particular broadcast is to just give students as much information. And I, I appreciate your your transparency and and your 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 willingness to kind of give us this window into your uh, your processes and so thank you very much uh, Layla Kristen and and Joel thank you for spending some time with us today and have a great rest of your day and and uh, we'll probably tap you again sometime soon for another another one of these if if that would be okay but we really appreciate your being here and uh, thank you to all the students that have watched and listened and uh, we will check back with you in about a month from now 
We'll give you the dates and stuff uh, later and the topic. Uh, every every month we have a Inside Med Admissions uh, broadcast and we have a new topic. And I think uh, I think we've uh, pretty much decided that the, the next topic we're going to tackle in the uh, month of May is going to be secondary applications. Secondary applications, uh, what are they all about? How do you use them? Uh, various uh, various questions with regard to this whole uh, process that we that we ask students to do uh, beyond that of the of the primary application. So again, thank you to our guests and have a great rest of your day, everyone. And uh, we'll catch you later. All right, so there you have it. Again, that was Inside Med Admissions, hosted by Dr. Scott Wright. This is a monthly series that my Mapped team puts on. And you can show up live. Again, it's typically the last Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. Eastern. But as always, the replays are available on our YouTube channel at mapped.tv. That's M-A-P-P-D dot TV. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.